You're listening to The Sower, a podcast of the Ciceronian Society. The Ciceronian Society is a community of Christian scholars and public intellectuals committed to the examination of three core themes, tradition, place, and things divine and their role in a civilization built upon the principles common to the traditions of historic Christianity. To learn more about us, our events, the podcast, our journal, Paitas, to sign up for our newsletter and make your tax-deductible gift, please go to ciceronianssociety.org. That's C-I-C-E-R-O-N-I-A-N-S-O-C-I-E-T-Y.org. I'm Josh Bowman, Vice President of the Ciceronian Society. And before introducing our guest, please join me in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray, O Lord, that you would bless our conversation and that all we say and do in these few minutes we have together would bring glory and honor to you. Amen. We're recording this on the morning of Thursday, July 7th, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, Professor Brent Waters, who was something of a celebrity back at our 2022 conference in Grove City. He stepped in quite late to fill in for a panelist who couldn't make it, and he did not disappoint. He also just retired as Professor of Christian Social Ethics at Garrett Evangelical Seminary. Brent is the author or editor of dozens of books, and I'll try and provide a few examples in the show notes. I'm not going to list them all right now, uh, but they all sound really, really interesting. And the topic of today's podcast, though, is his most recent book published just back in May, I believe. Uh, It's called Common Callings and Ordinary Virtues, Christian Ethics for Everyday Life, published by Baker Academic. Brent provides a thoughtful and accessible reflection on the everyday relationships and activities on the ordinary and the boring, which nevertheless point towards things divine, as Cicero said it, a key phrase for us here. Um, so welcome, Brent. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, in the preface, you write, quote, The real world is not extraordinary. But it is where we are called to love God and neighbor. And that love is known and expressed, given and received, most often in unexceptional ways in the routines and patterns of daily life, end quote. It's also a book about human flourishing. So uh, I want to get started here by just asking, what do you mean by ordinary in this book? And why take the time to write about it? Well, to me, it, it struck me that as I was coming closer and closer to retirement, that I realized that as someone trained in moral theology, I spent most of my time thinking about very big issues and, and, and extraordinary things, and then realized that I had really very little firsthand encounters with what I was thinking about. Most of my time was spent in very ordinary activities, very day-to-day uh, kinds of things. and. What I started thinking about is maybe this is a way that we fulfill the second great commandment of, of loving our neighbors. Because how we, how we express that love of neighbor is oftentimes meeting very basic physical and material needs on a day in and day out basis. And consequently, I realized I overlooked maybe the things that are most formative in the Christian moral life. That is just, you know, a glass of water to someone who's thirsty, taking care of a, of a child when, when she's sick of just going through those things that are required for us to, to really be um, who we are is very much, most of our lives are, are lived in very ordinary and routine ways. And I thought maybe it's time to start thinking about that and to, and to start reflecting upon it as someone who, who claims to know something about Christian moral theology. That's excellent. 
That's actually, it kind of reminds me of um, uh, the book, uh, Liturgy, uh, what's it called? The, the Liturgy of the Ordinary. Um, and and the, these these ordinary things that we do every day that we take for granted, uh, that just kind of get in the way, obstacles, um, you know, ne- uh, necessities of, of the little things we do. They're, they're not necessary evils. They're, they're necessary virtues and opportunities. Um, and with that in mind, you know, when, when you're writing this, who, and it may, maybe this is a, uh, too broad of a question, but do you have a specific audience in mind when you're writing this? I mean, it, in a way, I, it sounds like you're writing it to to pe- people like you who have focused on a lot of the extraordinary, but who have missed uh, or have realized that they they were overlooking the ordinary in everyday life. That's a good question because I really didn't have someone in particular in mind. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was looking in the mirror primarily. <laughs> um, I think, though, that one of the challenges of writing about this is that I, because I go out of my way to try to explain the book, what I'm talking about is, is something that is just inherently not interesting. In fact, it's mind-numbingly <laughs> boring. Um, and that really presented a challenge to write about because if you make it too interesting, then uh, it's no longer formative because it's in the sure tediousness that I think we learn something. And yet, if you write something that's so boring, no one reads it, then you won't make your point. So how do you write about something which is inherently mundane and yet make it just interesting enough for, for the reader to want to read it? And that, that was the challenge. So I guess my audience is based, is essentially anyone who spends time in, in, in the ordinary routines of life, which is just about everybody. So I just didn't have anyone in particular in mind. And that's probably the best way to go about this because you're reading this book um, and I just finished, I love it. And um, it's, it's, it's something, there is something for everybody because this, these are the everyday things that we do. There's nothing in here that doesn't apply to virtually anyone that you, that you talk to. Um, The book is divided into three sections. The first part goes with some theological themes and, and um, kind of background questions the next part deals with relationships, and the final part deals with activities. I want to talk a little bit about the theological themes here then, um, and there's so many things we could talk about here. I'm not, we're not going to get to all of them, but how do you distinguish in particular, because it's in the title, I wanted to bring this up, you make a distinction between callings and vocations. Now, what's the importance of that distinction for what you're trying to do in this book? Well, I think what I was trying to say is that the, the two are actually intricately related, not necessarily synonymous, but intricately related. And what I mean by that is that I think there's a tendency within popular thought to make a sharp division that um, the so-called more honorable or higher professions, such as medicine, ministry, and the like, are callings where everyone else simply has a vocation that that you can learn for skills. What I really want to say is, no, everyone has a calling. Um, and therefore, everyone has certain kinds of vocational skills that go with that calling. So, for example, to be called to, to be a father, for example, it means you have to learn how to change diapers. That's part of your vocational skill and your calling to be a father. But do we have to? I mean, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, yeah, I think we do. <laughs> All right. Distressing as that may be, I mean. Right. Um, go ahead. No, I, I, I wasn't going to say anything. But yeah, I mean, calling and vocation. So, I mean, I, you're not saying that changing diapers is a vocation, but um, but a calling might be that you have to do those little things like changing diapers. Right. I mean, it is it is part of the, 
the chest of skills that you need to learn. Just like if you want to be a minister, you have to learn which end of the baby to baptize. You have to learn, <laughs> you know, how to preach, how to, how to how to provide pastoral counsel. That's those are what I would call vocational skills that go with your calling to ministry. Mm-hmm. Speaking of changing diapers, and perhaps this is a good. Uh segue to this one of the a key term that i also noticed in, in early in the book was the idea of unselfing and when you're changing diapers your mind are, you know i mean you realize you don't you don't matter as much i mean you matter to that child but <laughs> you 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 think of yourself in this in this very high at least i i'm speaking to myself now in this kind of high and mighty way and now i'm changing a diaper um but at the same time, that is a, that there is something beautiful about that, and that concept of unselfing, which I think you take from someone else, if I remember. Um, wh- what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, 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 I use the concept as, as Iris Murdoch talks about it in both her philosophy and her novels, and she really borrows the concept from Simone Weil. Mm-hmm. And I think Iris Murdoch writes, I think, one of the most memorable lines in 20th century moral philosophy when she says in effect, the, the great enemy of moral excellence is the fat, relentless ego because it gets in the way of everything. And therefore, one needs to unself to, to begin to understand what is the good or the need of the neighbor, of the other. Um, and therefore, unselfing is a way of putting the ego on a diet of really shrinking it so that you can be really attentive to the other person to discover the goods and the needs. And exactly what you're saying, I mean, when a baby has uh, fouled uh, his diaper, um, the good right then is to change it. And one has to be attentive to that and not let the ego get in the way of, I'm a highly educated theologian, why do I have to change this? It's really, that's how you are loving and serving that neighbor in need who happens to be uh, your son or daughter as an infant. So I think it's it's a way of really saying, um, not that the self is unimportant, but the self can only be understood in relationship to others. And that means sometimes, in fact, a good part of the time, you have to shrink that ego to really understand what is the good of the other. It's a beautiful concept. It reminds me of John John the Baptist, of course. That he, uh, I must decrease that he may increase. And in, in many ways, I must decrease that they, that the other may increase um, in that respect. Um it's a it's a beautiful idea. Another very uh, Ciceronian theme in in this book also is that of place, um, and place comes up at several different times in the book. Um, and I, I, again, this is a big question, but as in terms of the ordinary and and these common callings, what role did place have in in, in your thought process as you as you were writing this? Place became increasingly important because I realized that as physical and material beings, you have to be in place somewhere all the time. And it really defies kind of the cultural myths that you don't need to be anywhere in particular. Well, you still are in some place. I mean, everyone is a still someplace in particular. So you be, there's a need, I think, to begin to value what is that place. And, and this is how we belong with each other, at least this side of eternity. So how do you take care of place? And that, I think, is becoming um, an increasing challenge in what I would characterize as, as a nomadic society, where we think, really, we can be free of place so because we can do everything on screens or we can do everything remotely. And I think, ultimately, that's just a fiction, that we have to be very attentive to the places where we belong with one another. 
Uh, so you're, yeah, there is that that chapter in which you talk about you know uh, the value of, of taking care of a house because you know people reside there and and, and a house is demanding of attention to maintain it, maintain even simply the cleanliness of it. Um, and I think we live in an era where we need to be more attentive to the importance of place as being formative. And it's, it's, a, it's both important foreground and background of, of, of moral formation and deserves much more attention. So that's why increasingly I'm, I'm reading writers like Wallace Stegner. Um, I, I know I need to return to Wendell Berry if I'm going to maintain a good membership in Sasonian society. <laughs> um, and, uh, and really beginning to learn about, you know, what, what does it mean to take place seriously? You know, I'm I'm in as I was telling you earlier. I I uh, I've been between moves right now, and I'm in between jobs, so I'm moving from one state to another. And it's it's striking how how much that sense of place becomes apparent. You know, as, as you're cleaning up a house, and you're looking at, you know, the things you've done there, the mark you've made, um, the attention you paid to this, or the uh, neglect you've paid to other parts, or um, the, uh, the the fact that you're also leaving something stable and wanting to. Uh, land somewhere, a, a place that you can get more connected to. You know, we've been here four years. We moved as as a lot of academics have to do, especially er, earlier in their career. We move a lot, and th- this longing for I just want to stay in one place so I can get to know to know the ordinary stuff, to feel like a local, right? Um, I, I I know reading some of these things in your book about neighbors and strangers and 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 place and play. Um, it made me think of my childhood when I was in the same town for most of my, you know, ch- for all of my childhood, actually. And and that sense of place is so valuable for appreciating and, and becoming more attentive to your neighbors and where you're at. Um, and uh, m- moving, I think, from one place to another certainly brings that to the forefront, uh, for, for better or worse. Um, I want to just... Uh, switch to part two now. Part two of the book focuses on everyday relationships, such as that with neighbors, friends, spouses, parents, children, strangers, and citizens. And you've carefully nuanced the way those categories differ and how they overlap. But I want to ask first, which of these categories for relationships did you find the hardest to elaborate on? And behind this question, I should say, is the observation uh, about the order that when you're writing about the ordinary and about the things you're writing about, it's, it's particularly challenging because of how much you're already in it in a sense. Like you, you're, you, it's hard to objectify the familiar to analyze it the way you have. Um, and I'm wondering of these relationships you were talking about, which ones or, or one did you find the, the hardest to write about and think through? That's really a good question, because in, in a sense, they were all difficult when you start thinking about them. I mean, I, I found that the concept of, of thinking about neighbors, I, I thought I was very clear about it until I started thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and and I, let me begin, first of all, with the preface. What I, what I really wanted to do early on was kind of explode the myth that we have a very limited range of neighbors. Known, in fact, are the range of neighbors, I think... You know, it's an ocean of neighbors, and I use that kind of Bardian structure of, of talking about neighbors near and far, mm-hmm. neighbors who are friends, neighbors who are enemies, and all of them re- have a kind of regard, but they need to be treated differently because they're a different kind of neighbor. Um, 
but I think in answering your question more directly, the, the most challenging for me was citizen. Hmm. Um, because what is, what is it? Citizens, that's a very interesting concept because it's, it's one of the few involuntary relationships that we have other than say something like family, like in family, you don't choose your, you don't choose your um, parents, certainly don't choose your siblings. And yet you're bound together. Same thing with citizens. We don't choose each other. Right. But we're bound together. And what does that mean? Because I think increasingly we live in a world which believes that um, my range of relationships should be a matter of choice. Mm-hmm. And that really then destroys the notion, I think, or, or at least corrodes the notion then of, of how are we in relationship with people in which we are in severe disagreement. Mm-hmm. And what, what is the kind of, of treatment that they should receive? And I think that's where the concept of civility is very important, that um, there should be you know, limits on what we utter public because they, are, they can be potentially destructive. And yet we live in, in a time where I think increasingly that speech is becoming coarse and disregards the citizens as someone who is really unimportant unless he or she agrees with me. Um, so I, what I found was was how do you how do you preserve the notion that in, in that in dealing with fellow citizens that the debate should be sharp, it should be pointed, and yet at the same time respectful. So I, yeah, I did find that talking about citizenship, I think particularly given the current circumstances, was the most challenging. I think one of the things that uh, informs that mentality of you know my my neighbors my. Uh, this, my fellow citizens are only those who agree with me. It comes from social media in many ways, right? I, I can, I can curate my network of people very carefully. Um, but that's not real life. You know, (laughs) you, you have to deal with, with what you've been given. Um, as much as I'd love to choose my neighbors, uh, I have great neighbors here, but, uh, I mean, there's always, you know, there's a risk. I'm going to be actually where I'm moving. I was gonna be right next to a hospital, um, which is, it would be interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you, you end up with neighbors and you can, you can't kick them out. Um, how do you choose to love and be with people, um, that you didn't choose? And that, that's part of life. Well, it is. And I think, you know, I've often referred to, you know, the families, families and churches, for example, are are splendid laboratories for learning to love people you don't necessarily like. (laughs) Um, and and yet, you know, it's really saying, okay, I think Augustine has that wonderful phrase, the bonds of imperfection. Right. And how do you begin to live that out? Because I think if, if you ignore those bonds of imperfection, those unchosen bonds of imperfection, I don't see how you can flourish because that means that you've completely narrowed your range of affiliation, which was never intended by God to be that narrow. Right. You'd be, you'd be quite lonely if you only choose to love those people that you like all the time. <laughs> right. And, and, and eventually you're probably going to be stuck with yourself. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of people you don't like all the time, right? You'd, right. Um, uh, that is that is very true. Um, now, part three, uh, again, I'm, I'm brushing quickly through this book. So th- those of you who are listening, please check, check out the book. There's a lot more to that relationship part. Let's look at part three. Focuses on activities, including work, housework, homework manners, appearance, eating, and leisure. And one of the more surprising inclusions here, and it seemed like you were cognizant of this, or at least it was, it was surprising to me, was that of appearance. 
What was your goal in that specific chapter? And and I also want to specifically uh, encourage you to talk about what you meant by uh, piety um, in that chapter, which I was surprised to find that there, uh, but I certainly learned a lot from you. So what did you mean by that chapter? Well, it kind of started off, it's, it's one of those chapters that at the time, again, you think you're going to be thinking very clearly about it, and as you get into it, it becomes more and more murky, and you got to find a way out by the end of the chapter. Um, but I, I was very taken by, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde's observation, that only shallow people never judge by appearance. And I think he's on to something, because by and large, when we deal with one another, all we can deal with is appearance. We never know each other fully. Only God knows us for fully. So we can only deal with how, how we choose to disclose ourselves and present ourselves to others. And I think that what I really wanted to say with that appearance in terms of how it comes about with piety is, again, it's a way of expressing regard of the neighbor. That, in a sense, you don't dress, you don't project yourself of how you want to appear to yourself, but of the, of the level of respect that you hold those that you are dealing with uh, is, is really the, the principal part of appearance. So, I, I'm, so again, I spent a lot of time on talking about uh, how, how does one dress? And if I show up to class every day, for example, in, in t-shirt and a dirty t-shirt and jeans, I think I'm saying something to my students of the level of regard that I hold them that I don't even bother to try to present myself to them in some way that, that shows respect uh, for them as students. I don't want to read too much into that, but I think it is a time where, where we have become unduly casual. And in doing that, what we're really projecting, what we're really presenting is a kind of uh, not only disregard of the neighbor, but uh, also again, back to, to Murdoch's fat, relentless ego that I don't have to bother about how I appear to others, because it's all about me anyway. Right. Um, so that, so in, in, in appearance, what I'm saying is that in, in some sense, our appearance should also be formed by our faith of what is God calling me, how is God calling me to present? Because again, I think that that whole notion of presentation now is becoming trivialized when we become, you know, walking Facebooks where everything on the Facebook page is, is, a, is a presentation of how we, we want to project ourselves. And in a sense, it does capture life, but it's, it's a false sense of life. And, and again, I, I think we need to be attentive to appearance to simply uh, guard against a, a notion that um, it doesn't really matter so we can be as false as we want in that appearance. It's not that it's, it, it's, it's way, a way of getting back of saying yes, by and large, you and I deal with masked characters, but those masks can be either deceitful or they can be revealing. So does that mean you're being disrespected if I'm wearing gym shorts, gym shorts and a T-shirt right now? I'm just kidding. Well, I don't know. I can't see you. <laughs> right, right. I mean, this is I have a I have a radio face, so I, it's OK. <laughs> um, but uh, this, this this is really interesting. I I. I, I used to be an actor, not a professional actor, mm-hmm. kind of more of a fake one. Um, I acted like I was an actor. And I, um, it was amazing to me also how when you put on the costume, the difference it made in mm-hmm. how you played the character mm-hmm. was massive. And so d- there's also a part that not only is it a love of neighbor, and I'm, again, I don't want to make this all about the self, but it's also striking that when you do care about your appearance, it doesn't just have a... Uh, a superficial effect on you. Um, it actually impacts what you do. I mean, when I, if I dress up to teach, 
Um, and when I say I dress up, is dress pants, dress shirt, no tie because ties are oppressive. I've decided. Um, but uh, I, <laughs> again, it, it is. It, it says something about you and, and what you think about others. Now, um, did, did you? How does that relate to piety um, in, in this regard? Because I think it's the level of respect that you that you display in, in exactly what you were talking about and in, in how you were dressing up. I mean, um, I've been struck oftentimes by by um, people from the military or, or police force who use the phrase to respect the uniform. And when they're in uniform, that is also showing something to which their their allegiance, their duty lies. And I think in, in much the same way, um, it's how how we present ourselves to others is also a reflection of of our faith in God because it, it is formative i mean like it or not people judge i mean i i think it's it's clement of alexandra who spends a lot of time telling christians how to dress how to de- compose themselves because basically his advice is like it or not how people judge you is how they're going to judge the object of your faith as well and it's something I think that we don't take with, with a sufficient degree of reflection is somehow is that how we present ourselves is also a presentation of our faith in, in, in Christ. And people will make judgments about that. I mean, like it or not, we are judged by our appearance. Speaking of judgment, my favorite chapter is probably the one on eating. For the simple fact that it's by far my favorite part of the everyday. <laughs> and depending on what you're eating, it's not it's hard not to think about things divine. I, I recently had uh, gelato. Uh, for those of you who've never had gelato, um, you know, that's the closest you can get to heaven on earth. Um, but I, I also really enjoyed, Brent, you talking about cooking. You know, tell us more, you know, what do you, uh, uh, first of all, what do you plan to cook for our conference in March? Um, and then second... You know, th- that that chapter, it sounds like it was inspired by, it, in some ways, by your cooking, right? The, the, the realization that there, there's more to this than meets the eye. Um, so I'd like you to just talk a little uh, briefly about eating uh, and, and what you're accomplishing in that chapter. Um, and again, what you're going to cook in March. Well, I'll start with the end. I'm not going to cook anything in March. Oh, come on. All right, fine. All right, I'll feed you. All right. Because, um, I mean... It, you know, you always run the risk of food poisoning. <laughs> you're not, you're not licensed. <laughs> how, how it came about was, a, oh, I'd say 10 or 12 years ago, I took up cooking as a hobby. Started doing more of it. And then I realized it was more than just a hobby. It was, there was something going on here that um, eating is a very social act. That even if, if you're eating alone, you're still in you're still dependent upon a wide variety of other people. There's farmers and ranchers and, and truck drivers, everyone who got this, I mean, no one can, can really um, supply all of their dietary needs on their own. They're completely dependent upon other people to do that. And and to even be mindful of that when you're preparing a meal, uh, I think is, is important. Also, it's also a way that I discovered is that you really do have to remain focused on what you're doing when you're preparing a meal because in the first place, almost any tool in the kitchen is potentially dangerous. And if you're not paying attention, you know, you can lose a digit because those, those knives are pretty sharp or you can injure yourself. So you need to remain focused on what you're doing. I mean, what I discovered early on is, you know, wait and drink the wine with dinner and not, not when you're preparing it. <laughs> okay. Um, 
So there's that part. And then there's also the notion of saying when you're cooking for others is, you know, what I what I discovered was you just sit there and wait for the other person to make the judgment on the meal that you're no longer concerned about. Is this something I like? It's what the other person might enjoy. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, a way of serving those those needs. And then, the you know, the, the amount of, of, I would say, you know, uh, related kind of work is, is incredible to me. I mean, you have to carefully set the table. You have to wash up afterwards. And a lot of daily mundane kind of work goes in around the table. And I, at this point, I was very much informed by the work of Albert Borgman, where, you know, you have also the fellowship of the table so that eating is a means of social interaction and learning, you know, the courtesies that go around the table, the, the etiquette and all is all very important. And again, my, my concern is that increasingly we live in, in a kind of culture that doesn't value dining, really. We, what we do is graze. I think we lose an important part of human interaction, human flourishing, by simply neglecting a simple act of what does it mean to share a meal with others. There is a point at which it, it's hard not to think of food as a love language. Um, <laughs> that's not one of the five, but it is. I mean, when you think of, yeah. you know, when I was off at college and I would come home, if my mother or my grandmother would make me food, it, one of the ways that they would say, welcome home. I love you. I've missed you. Here's that food that I know you love. Right. Um, and that, that to me is a, is a beautiful example of how it, it you're not, it's not just, it's, you're not just meeting a biological need. There's more to the story here. Um, speaking of stories, one of the things I passed over, we're not going to cover this here in the podcast, but I want to mention that one of the things Brent does through all these chapters is he relates a lot of what he's doing back to literature that he's read. Um, toward the end of almost every chapter, there's a book he's read, a novel, many of which I had never heard of in my life, which I think is a beautiful way uh, to enter into the ordinary um, and into the the, the challenges of thinking through this. I think it, it just as an analytical tool, as an explanatory tool, um, it was a really, really effective way of getting the point across um, so that even if we couldn't objectify our own lives and see the ordinary in our own lives, um, that, uh, that, that really w- was, was, was quite effective. And I want to ask this last question, and you can speak to whatever you want, but I, th- I thought it was interesting. Uh, our friend Gilbert, I, I think you say his name, Mylander, Yes. Mylander uh, writes that he says, quote, I hope that Waters will take no offense when I say that this book could not have been written by a young man. <laughs> now, aging, of course, is one of those ordinary aspects of life. But what do you I mean, I, I, I think I see what he means by, by that. But do you, do you think there's some uh, a truth to what he's saying there? Oh, I think he's absolutely right. I, I couldn't have written this book except now that I'm old because it's a retrospective book, not a, not a prospective book. Um Dave Vincent, who was, you know, a commissioner of Major League Baseball and then became a columnist after he retired uh, years ago, wrote a very interesting column where he said, as you grow older, increasingly, you live life in the rearview mirror. Hmm. Now, you keep moving forward, but you're still looking, in a sense, back. And that's what the book is about, is saying, OK, what, what have I learned anything of value as I come to the close of my career? as I enter into a period of uh, what O'Donovan calls entering into rest. How do you make those transitions? How do you reflect on this? 
But yeah, no, no, Gil, Gil's correct. I, I couldn't have written this as a young man because all I would have been doing is guessing what these things would have been like. Yeah. And maybe I get them right, maybe I get them wrong. But it's it's just an opportunity where I think, you know, and, and we don't take advantage of it, I think, enough in the culture is to really reflect upon where have I been rather than where am I going. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's sort of, it, that I think that's where tradition comes into the Sasonian society. What can we learn from tradition? Yeah. That's why we value the past because, not because it's past, but because it teaches us something that's very important for the here and now. You know, it, it's interesting when you're, you know, if you're in a, a, a job interview, right? One of, the, one of the common questions is, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Yeah. But, you know, we're interested. And that, that's not a that's not a stupid question. But um, an important question is, where were you five years ago? Where were you 10 years ago? How has that impacted you? Um, which is a very Ciceronian type question and very much related to what's going on in this book. Well, we've reached the end of our time together. Brent, thank you so much. Uh, this has been great. Um, and uh, take a look at his new book, Common Callings and Ordinary Virtues, published by Baker Academic. Very highly recommended. Thanks, Brent. Thank you, Josh. Now, you've been listening to The Sower, a production of the Ciceronian Society. If you've enjoyed this conversation and would like being in the company of thinkers like Brent, we invite you to join us for our next conference, March 9th through 11th, 2023, at Belmont Abbey College in North Carolina. Be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you download it from and share it with your friends and check out our website at ciceroneansociety.org. Thank you.